Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Soul and R&B icon Brian McKnight performs at Strathmore in North Bethesda, Maryland this Friday night. I spoke with the 16-time Grammy nominee about his biggest hits from Anytime to Back at One. Hey, Brian McKnight, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. No problem. Glad to be here. Now, um, I believe, uh, have you have, have you been trying to schedule the Strathmore show for a while? I, I, this pandemic keeps postponing it. Yeah, I can't remember just how long it's been, but it's been quite a while. So it's great that we're getting this opportunity to, to you know, for the fans and for everyone involved um, to, to be able to do this now uh, since I've been waiting and I'm sure they've been waiting for, for quite some time. Yeah, I think we interviewed you back like in 2020, back when the concert was first announced and then people heard it on our radio station and they still they've been waiting all this time <laughs> time to come see you. So it's, it's great they can finally come see you. So so if they do show up um, at the Strathmore in North Bethesda, what what sort of what are they going to hear? Is it like a collection of greatest hits? Any new stuff? What we got? Yeah, I'm not a fool. I know why people come to see me. Um, I'm going to play all the songs that they want to hear and I'll sprinkle some new ones in and um, there'll be some humor. There'll be some, you know, I try to take folks through all of the emotions. Um, we had a, a death in our family and, you know, for a lot of reasons, I probably shouldn't even be doing shows, but therapeutically, um, it's good to be on stage. It's good to, to feel that love from folks, even when you're down, um, even when things aren't exactly the way you, that you want them to be. The music itself um, has always been something that I wrote for people to get through whatever they were going through. And now it's become even more therapeutic for myself and for my family as well. Well, I'm sorry to hear about the death in your family. I, um, we're our, you know, our hearts go out to you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but yes, hopefully the, this, the live music and music in general um, in all forms is, is the biggest therapeutic we have. It is the, it is the, it, it's a healing power, man. So thank you so much for, you know, doing it for everybody. Um, no problem. You know, whenever I have someone, you know, esteemed like yourself on, I love to hear, you know, your, your whole journey. So I know you're born in Buffalo back in 69. Um, and you grew up in a bit of a musical family, right? Like explain. Yeah. So my, pretty much when you're born into our family, you're going to, it, it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to be musical. My grandfather um, was the minister of music in our church and our, our choir was mostly comprised of our family members. They, my grandparents had seven children and all of their children, I think there are 21 of us. Um, everybody sings, everybody plays. Um, my brother who sings in the gospel group takes six, I think he has 10 Grammys. So, you know, this is, it's been sort of a family business. Exactly. And do you remember what all you all listened to growing up? Like what was playing around the house? 
Uh, I mean, my parents, my mom loved to listen to gospel music. My brothers and I, I have three older brothers. We all had various different musical tastes. We listened to everything. Um, and the beautiful thing about growing up in the 70s and the 80s was it was before music became so terribly compartmentalized. So you'd hear Willie Nelson, then Earth, Wind and Fire, then Steely Dan, then, you know, ACDC or Kiss all on the same radio station. So you got a real great grouping of, of lots of different types of music before it became so specialized. That's great when the same DJ can switch from Earth, Wind & Fire to Willie Nelson to ACDC. I mean, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're getting the gamut there. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned your older brother, uh, Claude, you know, his group Take Six. Um, they, they signed with Warner Alliance in 1987. Um, so when, but when, for you, when was sort of your little foot in the door? You know, like I know you started recording demos at a studio in, in Huntsville, Alabama back in college, but explain sort of those early days and recording those demos. Like how did that go, go down? Well, um, I was going to school in Huntsville, the actual studio where Take Six got sort of discovered after they made their first sort of independent record was the studio that I was working out of as a professional writer. I got a publishing deal when I was 18 to write. And all those demos that we did then were sent out to all the record companies and the publishing companies. And they were started asking, you know, well, who's writing music? I was like, well, I am. It's like, well, who's producing? It's like, I am. Um, well, who's singing? It's like, well, I am. It's like, well, do you want a record deal? It's like, <laughs> okay. Uh, I never really thought about being an artist. I always wanted, I wanted to be David Foster. I wanted to be the guy sort of behind the music. Um, but everybody wants to be a rock star. I don't care who you are, that, you know, whether you sing in the shower, whether you can sing or can't sing, there's always that dream of being either a, uh, an athlete or a rock star. Um, and so I took that chance, not thinking that it would actually turn into a 30 year career, but it has. That we're glad you took the chance. <laughs> so you signed with Wing Records, which is a, you know a part of a subsidiary of Mercury. And uh, so you record that platinum selling debut album, uh, self-titled Brian McKnight in 1992. Um, talk about that that first hit single there, "One Last Cry." How did you how did you come like how did that song come about? Uh, you know what's interesting is that, but that was actually my third single. So "The Way Love Goes" was first, and then "Goodbye My Love," which were, you know, taken right to what was then R and B type radio. But they were all a setup for "One Last Cry." "One Last Cry" was written actually. I wrote it when I was 19, thinking that. I could pitch that to Bette Midler. I didn't want to sing that song. I didn't think that it was cool for, you know, a, a guy that thought he was cool to sing this sort of soft, brokenhearted song. I wrote it <laughs> thinking that a woman would sing it. Not that they're, you know, not being sexist or anything, but back then that's the kind of songs that women sang. Um, Ed Eckstein, who was who signed me, he was brilliant. He was like, he showing that a man can be sensitive, which wasn't new necessarily, but um, I was a 21 year old kid and here's this one last cry and we set it up with a duet that I did with Vanessa Williams called Love Is for the Beverly Hills 90210 soundtrack and then it was my introduction to pop radio. Um, that's the one thing I've never really talked about much how to walk that fine line between crossing over into you know popular music while also keeping your foot you know, entrenched uh, in your base, which is, you know, whatever you want to call it, black music, R&B music. That's, that's been the tightrope I've walked since the very beginning of my career. 
We said that's something you haven't talked about much. Let's talk about it. What What is the key to that? How, how do you do it without, you know, how do you make sure you don't go too far in one direction and keep, you know, keep the hardcore fans of, of your specific genre? It's it's almost impossible. Um, <laughs> if you look at myself and a group like Boys to Men and a few others who had had that kind of, you know, popular success on the other charts, you know, they're, they're sometimes, at least for us as an artist, um, I don't think resentment's the right word, but, you know, when you start at one place and then you, you, you go to this other place where now you become, you know, more of a household name, you know, people can think that you just sort of forgot where you came from. And it's not even that. Um, I think it's just as, as musicians, as songwriters, as artists, we want our music to be listened to by the greatest number of people that we possibly can. Um, and that's what our motivation is. It was never about, oh, I only want to play to those people or to these people. I want to play to everybody. Um, but as a black artist, there is a, there's a there's a way you have to do that. And I'm not sure that any of us have done it as best as we possibly can. But, you know, you because it's a lot of trial and error that goes along with that. You know, it's tough. Well, you've been able, you've managed to do it, and and boys, you mentioned boys to man. You know, there's a select few there from from that era that were able to do it. Um, and speaking of boys to man, really quick, I got to give a shout out because people probably don't ask you much. They ask about your hits, but um, talk, tell me about producing that holiday album. We just got through Christmas here. Christmas interpretations <laughs> in '93 was one of my favorites. Uh, you know, growing up, uh, you talk, talk about crafting that with those guys because you had you know you had covers of classic Christmas carols like Silent Night, which is perfect for their harmonies, but then you had, like, new original kind of stuff like the the Let It Snow reimagining, you know, the whole new version there. So talk about producing that record. You know, I met those guys in a hotel lobby in New York um, when I was mixing my first album. Uh, they didn't know who I was. They knew who my brother was, but I was just playing the piano in the lobby, and they were coming back from a, a promotion that they were doing, and we all met. And fast forward to two years later, when they were going to do their Christmas album after the huge success of that first album of theirs, you know, they called me. Um, they're kids. I'm a kid. I've only ever produced, uh, you know, a couple of other things, and. You know, it was, it was it was really great because they had these ideas of these songs that they didn't play. So they were just singing me what was in their head. And I had to craft this whole record based on what I thought I was hearing from what they were singing to me. Um, and then I went back and they're still on tour. I fly all over the world with them. And while they're taking a break from their tour, they're coming in the studio with me. I wrote Let It Snow walking down the street in London in July. <laughs> it's blazing <laughs> Christmas hot, in July um, you know because yeah you know it was it was a really fun experience and you know those guys are are definitely my extended family they are my brothers and have been now and, um, uh, almost 30 years that is so so cool and then uh, you kept working with them on other other projects too so that's just great stuff um all right well you know uh, enough dishing about your collabs with other people i want to at least hit a couple of your your big you know solo ones too so i, I any any time was massive in 97 both the song and you know the album of the same name that I, the album went i think a couple times platinum but um tell me take me into the writing of that song how did you come up with any time sir you know, I after my second album, the first record, I think, was Double Platinum. And then my second album um, was, I think, right at a million. So I was trying to figure out what I did or whether there was some sort of disconnect. So the beginning of that song was really a, a letter to the fans kind of saying, 
you know, I'm trying to figure out. Some of my greatest writers were able to to pull off double entendres with, you know, there's this meaning, but then there's that meaning. Um, as I delved into the song, I was like, I think that very few people are going to be able to relate to this. So I spun it into more of a relationship type song. But I was really kind of, you know, lamenting the fact that I, I think that what we all want is to, for every record to do a bit better than the last one. Um, but, you know, sometimes you have that sort of sophomore sort of jinx or whatever it is when the first one is done so well that you, you can't really put your finger on why the next one isn't. But then any time comes and becomes the juggernaut that it is. And then I sort of figured out what people wanted from me. So when Back at One comes along, then it's like, okay, now I know. And we saw what that one did. Yeah, you mentioned Back at One. I doubt if, if, you, if you have a second, please relay the story you told me last time about coming up with that one. Did you just moved into a new house and we're going through an instruction <laughs> well, yeah. manual? Please remind our <laughs> listeners. It's a hilarious story. Yeah, so, you know, after the success of Anytime, Anytime built that house that uh, I was moving into. And I am a, I've always been an electronics geek, you know, whether it was video games, components uh you know this is like the beginning of the really serious home theater and the guys were there that were putting in the home theater and i'm looking at the manual for the dvd player and on pretty much on every troubleshooting page of a, a component it says well do step one do step two if the problem persists do this then repeat steps one two and three and i was like whoa that's a song and then the rest is kind of history. That's probably the 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 song I've I've written the fastest. The hardest part of that song was sort of the jazzy intro that I play. Everything else was like five minutes later. The song was finished. Oh, absolutely. And and uh, and you know, it's also the song that's probably reached the widest, diver most diverse audience because the shortly after that, country artist Mark Wills did a cover. Take me into you know your your thoughts on when you when you heard he was going to be doing that, and you know just um you know just how you thought it stacked up. So what I thought was is that, and this is a typical businessman. I'm like, well, I've got every other chart except for country. <laughs> if Mark does this and it even becomes a pseudo hit, then I've actually hit almost every chart except for rock or new new age, whatever that is, and and the jazz charts. But um, got to meet Mark, got to actually perform the song with Mark, and we became really good friends. So. You know, that's why that song, I think that year from 99 to 2000 was the most played song everywhere because nobody else had <laughs> that many, <laughs> you know, uh, playlists that were going on at the time. So it was, it was really great. That's got to be wild. You're right. It's been so many people have heard it on all the different charts. It's got to be wild to know that you could walk up to pretty much anyone of any stripe down the street. And if you say the number one, most anyone could go like a dream come true. It's got to be. I mean, you hit everybody. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and as a song, as a songwriter, that's what you want for sure. <laughs> you're ubiquitous man um well really cool um i appreciate you joining us it, it, before we run um i do want to ask again about the um the uh the the kobe Bryant duet you did hold me um man i mean uh at the time it, it must have meant one thing to you wow i'm collaborating with you know the, the next michael jordan or whatever but now in hindsight after kobe's tragic passing it must mean a whole another thing to you right yeah i mean i have the the distinction of being one of the only artists in the world that's created music with Kobe Bryant. Um, but beyond that, it was, it was the friendship. 
it was sort of the two of us stepping in. If you look at that video, you know, I'm playing basketball in the video with a bunch of first round draft picks, Derek Fisher and Paul Pierce and um, Chris Mills are all in that video playing basketball with me while Kobe's actually playing the recording artist. So it was really, it was a fun day. It was a, it was really uh, incredible to sort of meet him because this was really before anybody knew that he was going to be become what he became. I think it was his second year in the league and his first year didn't go that great. Um, so, so to, to have a part in that, to sort of, you know, he was asking me questions about the music business and all that and being able to be there to, for him was really great. So when he passed, it was like, again, one of my, one of my brothers, you know, leaving this earth. So, and it's, it's still, it's been two years now almost, and it's, it's still, uh, surreal and that, and, and doesn't, doesn't appear and doesn't feel to be real. Oh yeah, it that that's gonna forever be you know for the rest of all of our lives. That's gonna be one of those remember where you were moments for, for sure. It's so sad, but but on the you know on the you know silver lining, your your guys will always be frozen forever in time in that video. So you'll all you know that's right. <laughs> Again, um, it's gonna be um at the Strathmore in North Bethesda this Friday. Sixteen-time Grammy nominee Brian McKnight. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. We also spoke in 2020 before the pandemic postponed his previous show at Strathmore. Brian McKnight, it's an honor to talk to you. Thanks so much for calling in. No problem. What can we expect from the show? I know you got a new single out, Never Get Enough of You. Um, are we going to hear a little of that and maybe, you know, maybe some of your hits still? Yeah, so basically my show is uh, a retrospective of the 30 years I've been in the business. So I, I go back and I play. I, I'm not foolish. I know why people are coming to see me. That's why I play all the songs that they're coming here. Um, it's definitely a 90s retrospective, and I sprinkle in a few new things, but for the most part, it's, it's all the hits from yesteryear. Awesome. Well, that, that sounds great. And then, uh, you know, what, what, when we're sitting in the audience looking up on stage, what, what, do, we get, what are we working with? Are you, you got like, a certain amount of people, you know, you got yeah, backup singers, you got a band with you. What do you got on stage? Well, I, I have my band and myself. Uh, I don't really do background singers necessarily. Um, we, we try our best to, to put together the best hour and a half, hour and 25 minutes of, of music and entertainment um, that we can possibly do. Um, I've been told now, I, I'm not going to confirm this myself, but I'm very, very funny. So there's humor, there's music, there's <laughs> all the range of emotions. And uh, we just, you know, we, we basically give the folks what they, I mean, people have seen me. Most of the people that come to see me have seen me at some point in the last 30 years. So I just really want to give them what they expect, which is I'm going to sing to the best of my ability. I'm going to play to the best of my ability and play all the songs that are coming to you. Awesome. Um, take me back to, to the beginning. Uh, I know you were, you know, born up in Buffalo. Um, how, how'd you get, how'd you get bit by the music bug to begin with? Well, I come from a musical family. Uh, we all grew up singing in church. All my aunts, uncles, cousins, my brothers and myself. Um, never thinking about doing it professionally, but my brother sings in the group Take Six when he got signed and they started doing their thing. That's when it became a possibility. So then I, I dropped everything and started pursuing music um, as a writer and as a producer and as an artist full time when I was 18. Awesome. And before we get to that point, I also want to know, um, you know, what, what sort of records you guys, you know, routinely were playing around the household growing was it, was it mostly just the singing in the church, or what? What sort of like what sort of like popular music was playing around your house as a kid? Well, you got to realize this was the the end of the '70s and all through the '80s, so it was the, one of the greatest periods of time to grow up because you had all the music from the '60s that our parents were listening to, 
Then you had all the Stevie Wonder and the Earth, Wind, and Fire and the Bee Gees in the 70s and the 80s music from Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie and Kenny Loggins and the police. I mean, I, was, I play guitar, so I wanted to be in Van Halen at some point, but obviously that's not <laughs> happened. But, you know, it was, I, I really got a great musical education, and my grandfather led, you know, big band in the, in the 40s, so I'm, I'm also a huge jazz head. So I think I have a really great musical library of music to draw from um, for the music that I create. For sure. And how do you, you know, how did you develop that, you know, man, you got one of the best, you know, falsettos in the biz. You can, you got some range. Did you have any formal singing lessons back in the day, or was was that, is that just like an innate <clears throat> gift, man? Yeah, I think uh, everyone in our family sat at the the feet of our parents, who all sang. So I wouldn't say that we were formally trained, but our parents were. So they gave us some of the same kind of training that they had growing up, even though we didn't actually go to actual teachers. Uh-huh. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, well, so as you mentioned, your older brother, you know, was in Take Six, which I'm sure a lot of folks will remember. They signed their deal with Warner Brothers, and then how did actually, you know, how did that ultimately lead to you signing uh, with with Wing at Wing Records? I think you were like 19 or something. But how how did that? Right. Was, was there any connection there? Was that any contact? You know, you knew through your brother, or how did that? No, work? it didn't really work that way. I basically, I was, I'm, I am a songwriter. I mean, I'm an artist, too, but I'm a songwriter first. And I sent all my demos out to all the record companies and all the publishing companies out there. And they basically were like, well, who's writing the songs? Like, that's me. Well, who's singing the songs? Like, that's me. Who's producing the songs? Like, that's me. Like, well, do you want a record deal? I was like, okay. And that's how it began. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not any, you know, that are the triple threat like that. So I'm sure when they saw the songwriter and that voice, they're like, that's the same guy. Oh, we signed him up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It wasn't quite that um, easy, but I, I sort of I, I, I paraphrased it for you. Yeah, it took me it's about a year of actually searching, and it finally happened. And you are cutting those demos. Where are you cutting the demos? I actually signed as a professional writer when I was 18. I was working in a studio every day um, down in Huntsville, Alabama, where I was going to college. And I was very lucky in that respect that I got to be able to to do that and actually work in a studio. We're talking 1988. Nobody had a home studio in 1988. You had to go to a studio. Technology wasn't like it is now where anybody could have a studio in their home. So, yeah, I was very fortunate to actually work in a studio every day. That's awesome. Uh, then you get your, you know, you have your self-titled debut album in 92. Um, and I remember, God, I remember the big song, uh, One Last Cry off of that. How did that one actually uh, come to you, you know? Do you remember where you were when you actually put pen on that one? No, not really. My first album was a collection of songs that I was really just trying to imitate all the songs that I listened to when I was a kid. I hadn't really been through anything. I know that people use that song as their get over a breakup song, but I've I've never had a breakup, so I have no idea what that must feel like. I was just really trying to call on all the sad songs I'd ever heard of and try. Actually, I wrote that song hoping that a woman would sing it, but when the record label heard that song, they were like, we're not giving that away. You're keeping it. I'm glad they made that decision because it's one of my biggest hits. People still sing that today, like all singing competition shows or, you know, or just people still, it's still around. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> um, and then I know you did a you did a duet. Love is I I remember that. Playing. I feel like dude, I grew up on your music, so I'm like, <laughs> I I, 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 there's so many I want to talk about. It was great. You know, I'd actually produced part of her second album, the Comfort Zone album. So when the that song Love Is is actually from the Beverly Hills 90210 soundtrack, when that's when that show was really hot. 
and it was a duet that it was just natural for us to do. Um, and we did it, not thinking anything would come of it, but it was actually my very first charted, you know, top 100 Billboard song, and that didn't pave the way for One Last Cry. It was really a great introduction to the pop chart. But then One Last Cry was able to do what it did based on what we were able to introduce with that song. Absolutely. And then this maybe this is a bit of a deeper cut, but we're talking collaborations. And I loved your, your boys to men thing, the, the let it snow. I mean, that, that yeah. song had been around forever in one form and you guys totally flipped it and added whole new lyrics to it. And, you know, my brother and I jamming out to that growing up around Christmas, but what was it like working with, you know, uh, I guess you wrote that with one year, right? I did. You know, we were, in London, because they were on tour, and I was, I produced that whole Christmas album for them. And in June, so I'm writing Christmas songs in June, uh, <laughs> in the summertime. And, you know, those guys are like my brothers. We've known each other a very, very, very long time. So it's, it was really great to to work with them and continue to be, you know, as close as we are, you know, 25 years later. Awesome. Uh, tell me about uh, Crazy Love, because I know your album, I Remember You, was, was pretty big as well. Um uh, take me yeah, into, another, into the creation of Crazy Love. Yeah, it was another movie soundtrack. There was a hit movie out that year called Jason's Weird that I worked on. I produced actually two songs on that album. And um, the producers of the movie came to so it's a Van Morrison song, one of the very few covers I've done in my career. And uh, I produced that song for the movie. And at that time, Van Morrison had to clear everyone that recorded his music. And he, he gave me a thumbs up and the rest of history. Awesome. And of course, you, you just keep bigger and bigger. And uh, I mean, Anytime is probably one of the biggest songs of the 90s, at least that I remember. Like that just looped in my ear when I think back to that time. But um, yeah, how did you actually come up come up with the, the idea to write that? You know, some songs, they just kind of write themselves. I can't really remember a concept or what I was thinking, I mean, again, it's another ultimate sort of breakup song, which I haven't been through, but, you know, sometimes the, the changes that you play and the melodies you come up with actually dictate how the song is going to go. And anytime is a perfect example of, of music and lyric coming together in a way that was very synchronistic. Yeah. Uh, it, it, what, and then, uh, would you say the same thing for, you know, back at one, that was another huge one. Um, how do you yeah. get the idea to so, do count it off? I mean, like a numerical count off. <laughs> right. So anytime I built my, the house I, we, we lived in in California, and I was putting in a, a home theater, and I was reading the manual for the DVD player. And I went to the troubleshooting page because it wasn't working, and it said, you know, do step one, step two, and step three, and if the problem persists, then do this and repeat steps one, two, and three. And a song was born from that. Wow, that's wild! I had no clue. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what's, yeah. Wasn't there a um? Wasn't there like a a country cover of that one too? Yeah. So that's what made me songwriter of the year that year because not only was it a hit for myself on five or six different charts, and it was also number one on two country charts. You know, my my good friend Mark Wills covered it at the exact same time, kind of like when Leanne Rhymes and I can't remember the young lady's name who did the other. How do I live without Trish, you? Trish, Trisha Yearwood. One and two. Trisha Yearwood. Yeah, at the very same time, yeah. number one and number two on the chart at the, at the same time. So that was really, really cool. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned it, that Billboard gave, you know, Songwriter of the Year, but it's true. that It really is the t uh, of a good 
and whether, you know, like I will always love you could be Dolly Parton or Whitney Houston could blow it out of the water too. Like that is the mark of a good songwriter. So off to you. Um, I know around this, around that time you, you switched to Motown records too, right? I think in like 98, how, how exciting was that to, you know, you probably listened to a bunch of those records growing up and to finally be on that label yourself. <laughs> yeah, it was great to, for the history that was associated with that. It was really more of a move. Uh, Polygram had been sold everything to Universal, and they moved the entire sort of black music department uh, at Polygram over to Motown. So it was great to be associated with so many great acts at that time. To be on, you know, to say that you're on Motown was really was really special. It was, it was one of those things that you know, I'm with Barry Gordy. You know, it was, it was really great to be on that label. Gotcha. And is it true? Uh, not is hey, it true? Jason? I remember, but yeah, Jason. Sorry to interrupt. We have time for one last question. Okay, cool. I uh, real quick ask you about um your you you work with with uh with the late Kobe Bryant on on Hold Me. Uh memories of, of right. that and you know and your reaction to, you know mm-hmm. now that he's lost, man. Yeah, you know, one of the greatest people that I've ever met and to have been in his life when he was so young and just coming into his own and to see him grow. Um it was really tragic for myself and my family what's happened and and being able to reflect on not only what he meant to us personally, but what the whole world, um, what he meant to the whole world. And, you know, it's it, it, it's still something that it's unbelievable the way I still wake up every morning not believing that this has happened. But the world was a better place because Kobe Bryant is here. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, we appreciate you taking the time. Um, man, I don't know what we got to do to get you a Grammy. You got like 16 nominations. It's going <laughs> to you earn. You deserve one, man. I, I, we'll, we'll keep pushing it. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.